You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Well, welcome to this bonus episode of Pathways with Joseph Campbell. And we're doing something a little bit different today. We've got a, a guest with us, Stephen Geringer, who's the community coordinator with the Joseph Campbell Foundation. And I have to say, also is the institutional memory of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Uh, if there's anything any of us ever want to know about Campbell, some esoteric detail, we go to Stephen and he has the answer nine times out of 10. Oh, thanks for having me. I always love talking with you, Brad. <laughs> you've got a, you're, you've had quite the year as an author, actually. You've got uh, one book that was released a couple of months ago, uh, Myth and Modern Living, which is a marvelous book of essays, collection of essays that you've written over the years. And uh, this month, uh, the month of November, uh, we're going to see another volume of yours that you have available. So can you tell us a little bit about your new book? Yes, indeed. Well, the the main thing to tell is that it's not my book. It's by Joseph Campbell. Yeah, I am the editor and compiler of this book. It's called Myth and Meaning, Conversations on Life and Mythology. And it it, it is something I compiled over the last 20 years. Uh, Robert Walter, uh, past president of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, first spoke to me about this book in December of 2003. And we have we had access to a lot of interviews of Joseph Campbell, uh, audio interviews that no one had heard apart from someone on a radio program you know, 25, well, now 40, 50 years ago, and so on. Little-known print interviews, interviews that were never published, and then question-and-answer sessions following lectures that even in lectures that were released by the foundation, and there are a ton of Joseph Campbell lectures in the archive, something approaching a 1,000 lectures. So a wonderful question-and-answer sessions uh, that are just rich with material, but have not been published. And the, the question was, what format? How would we get that out? And Bob turned to me, asked me to start working on that. Uh, in part, I think, because I spent, well, in fact, over the last 25 years, I've been involved either moderating or administering a number of discussion platforms over social media, you know, Yahoo groups, uh, the Joseph Campbell's own conversations of a higher order, where thousands of people have engaged on the subject of Joseph Campbell. And something that would recur regularly in all of these discussions, thousands of which I monitored and quite a few in which I interacted with people directly, would be, what would you ask Joseph Campbell if you had the opportunity? Because his work raises so many questions for people, things that they want to know more about. Well, in these obscure interviews and question and answer sessions and so on, Campbell covers about everything. It's in there somewhere. So I'm armed with all these questions people have asked over the years and my own curiosity. Uh, these interviews, we couldn't necessarily just publish 
you know, a few dozen interviews, there's so much repetition in them. Uh, in most interviews, there comes a point where Campbell would, you know, provide context by discussing the four functions of mythology. So, you know, that becomes repetitive. And then a number of interviews, um, you know, they'd be interviews where, you know, Joe is on a book tour, he's talking to a journalist who doesn't know much, you know, about myth versus math. You know, so, you know, questions would be generic and Joe would kind of pivot and answer what he wanted. So there's all this material we had. The question was how to break them up you know, and put them in a form that's readable, that's accessible, that conveys Joseph Campbell's thought and not Stephen Garinger's thought. Uh, uh, so the last 20 years has been taking these interviews, listening to recordings, you know, and basically breaking them apart. I decided to approach it as a syncretic work, uh, much the way Joseph Campbell did with the work of Heinrich Zimmer after Heinrich Zimmer died. You know, and I'll detour into that very briefly. Zimmer was a mentor of Campbell's, a friend of Jung's, this marvelous Indologist whose way of thinking and approach very, very similar to Joseph Campbell's. Zimmer died, unfortunately, unexpectedly in 1943, and Campbell was asked by his widow and by the Bollingen Foundation to edit uh, Zimmer's works posthumously. Zimmer had a number of books in mind. So Campbell had to go through Zimmer's notes, pardon me, Zimmer's lectures, uh, and just things that he remembered uh, discussing with Zimmer on these subjects, kind of break them up and put them into a form that is definitely Zimmer, though you can see Campbell bleeding through a little bit. I think of Zimmer's works as proto-Campbell. But I, I took that approach. David Cudler and I, who David is the past managing editor of the collected works of Joseph Campbell, and we spoke about this at length because David was the editor overseeing my process. And in the posthumous works of Campbell that David put together, you know, often it would be a lecture that was being edited into a chapter, one or two lectures. So you know, it was a little easier to work with that, and David would follow the, the the transcript, you know, and edit it so it would be understandable. On the other hand, I had to take all of these different interviews, break them up, and come up with new questions, because quite often, uh, it, well, there were three types of questions generally that I would use. Uh, People who would be interviewing Campbell, sometimes even brilliant interviews, their questions would be longer than Campbell's answers. Uh, and this is really about Joe's work, getting that out to people, not about the questioner. So sometimes, you know, I would take a question and just encapsulate it, you know, summarize it, put it into a, a better form, if you will. Then there were all the questions that people had asked for years in different discussion forms that I know folks wanted an answer to. You know, what does Joseph Campbell think about life after death, for example? You know, so I would take those questions 
And uh, then a, a third form of question were questions that were suggested by the material. And uh, I would break the interviews apart so that like there's one marvelous interview um, where Campbell's discussing the four functions of myth. And he starts off with the best explanation of each function, you know, when he's asked a question by the interviewer. But then the interviewer interrupts and they get off into the weeds and never quite get back to that. So sometimes I would take the beginning part of Campbell's explanation here and a wonderful ending that he used in another interview and weld them together. Other times, like there's one discussion where Campbell's asked about, you know, what are the origins of myth? And he's talking about, you know, the the burials, Neanderthal burials, you know, back a hundred thousand plus years ago, you know, that burial with grave goods, this is a sign of a sense of an afterlife and so on. Well, even though that conversation didn't bring it up, this is where I would insert a question asked in another interview about, well, what do you believe happens after death? So, you know, it's it's a little bit more readable. It flows together because these interviews didn't have a specific organization to them. So it was in many ways, I think I mentioned this in the foreword, like putting together a 20,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. And originally, you know, when I started, there wasn't any picture on the side of the box to work from. Over time, I realized Campbell's entire opus, you know, his body of work provides that picture. Uh, so th that's a little bit about my process and, and how I got into that. But I think we end up with a, a delightful work. Uh, and if you don't mind, let, let me just keep going from there. Uh, because the other thing that I think is relevant is that I think there are two kinds of Campbell. This is the way I picture it in his his works that are available to the public. One I call written Campbell and the other spoken Campbell. And written Campbell are texts like Hero with a Thousand Faces or the four-volume Mask of God. They're replete with footnotes. They're well-researched. And the paragraphs are dense. They're packed with information. I can, it's like reading a work of Carl Jung. You know, I can read a paragraph and sometimes I just have to sit with it for a few moments and unpack it. And if I go back later, you know, a few years later, there are other things I find in there which are incredible. But then there's Spoken Campbell, which are works that are edited from lectures and interviews. The best known is probably the power of myth interviews with Bill Moyers. Uh, but Campbell himself started the tradition with myths to live by in the early 70s, which is his edit of transcripts of lectures he gave at the Cooper's Union in the, the late 50s all through the 1960s. And Spoken Campbell has a little bit different feel to it. It's not as dense. You, you don't have all the footnotes. It's still just as profound. But also, Campbell's voice comes through, which is really delightful and charming. And in many ways, Spoken Campbell is far more relatable for people. I know so many people who, you know, 
have started reading Hero with a Thousand Faces. And for many of us, it's it's inspirational. For others, it doesn't quite connect, but say they open Pathways to Bliss, which is a posthumous work published in 2005, and it just zings for them. So, Well, this is great, Stephen. And so uh, speaking of, you know, you mentioned a question people ask often is what did Campbell think about life after death? So let's let's hear what he had to say about that. Oh, very cool. Um, he was asked, you know, what do you think happens when you die? And he said, well, consciousness separates from the body. And then, well, then what happens? And his next response was, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, when asked about reincarnation, uh, you know, is that something you believe in? Uh, Joe pointed out that he doesn't believe in literalizing mythological images. You know, reincarnation is a very valuable image. You know, going to heaven is a valuable image, but literalizing it, we end up stuck in the weeds. So, you know, Joe's final answer is this. You know, consciousness separates from the body, but after that, he just did not know, and and he was fine with that. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 so curious to speculate about his own inner life. You know, I think that that those of us who work with this material all the time uh, feel a kind of intimacy with him, but yet he remains this rather distant figure at the same time, and. And uh, it, it's very intriguing to speculate about. And that was very intentional on Campbell's part. Uh, he, he did not like the, the, the aspect of biography. And in my own mind, I trace that back to the uh, school of criticism called, um, uh, well, New Criticism, which pretty much came in in the 30s and 40s at the time that Joe started teaching literature at Sarah Lawrence. It's very similar to uh, formalism uh, in terms of critique, which T.S. Eliot and others uh, uh, tended to embrace. And those schools of criticism, they discount biography. They don't believe in looking at anything about the author's life uh, when it comes to literary cr criticism or the historical context of the time in which the author lives. And that seems to reflect the attitude that Campbell expressed often when asked about biography. He basically was, well, gee, that's, that's not important at all. You don't need that to understand my work. Uh, at the same time, you know, towards the end of the li his life, uh, you know, a number of friends managed to get him to agree to a series of interviews that evolved into the book called The Hero's Journey, which covers Campbell's life. And he kind of grudgingly agreed to that. And then occasionally there were interviews over the years where people would delve into his life. A couple of interviews that specifically were asking about him rather than just his work, though, of course, there's a strong connection between the two. And so that really comprises the final chapter of the book, which is called The Course Has Gotten Wider. That really focuses on Campbell's life. 
but yeah, his inner life it has always fascinated me. You know, where where was his wasteland? You know, what was his death and rebirth experience? Campbell uh, was at Columbia at the same time. Another one of my literary heroes was at Columbia, Lionel Trilling. And Trilling went on to teach there for as many years, probably, as Campbell taught at uh, Sarah Lawrence. But uh, I, I keep looking for little connections between them, and I don't find them. And I think I've uh, uh, come to the conclusion that that the reason they didn't interact is they had different political views. Uh, Campbell was kind of apolitical in a lot of ways, uh, where Trilling was very engaged in, in uh, liberal politics. Uh, a non-communist, I think he and Campbell would have gotten along there. But, but... What, what did Trilling teach at Columbia? He taught literature. Okay, this is interesting because there may be a, a oblique reference to Trilling um, in uh, one of the interviews with Joseph Campbell, uh, where he's talking about you know, he came back from Europe. He was over there on a Proudfoot scholarship in the 1920s. Uh, and it is interesting, you know, many people believe Campbell came from a life of privilege, and he did in very many ways. But he went to Europe on a scholarship that paid his way as a graduate student, which is what allowed him to go to the Sorbonne. And in fact, he received a second year of that scholarship, which allowed him to attend the University of Heidelberg and learn German. And while he was learning German, he was reading Hume, which is pretty impressive for a first-year German student. But uh, when he came back to the United States, the Depression kicked in just uh, a matter of days after he arrived. And at the same time, the bottom had dropped out of Campbell's world because while over in Europe, he discovered modern art. He discovered the work of James Joyce and Thomas Mann, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud. And he realized what he was studying, which was, you know, a very minor subset of, you know, what Provençal France, uh, you know, literature from that period, Arthurian literature, in his mind, the whole world had opened up for him. So he didn't want to go down that narrow path towards his PhD anymore. He went to Columbia and talked to his professors about broadening his field and continuing with the PhD there. And they did not like that idea. Uh, the thought at the time with his professors was that, okay, you come to Columbia, you do the PhD, and we already have a job for you teaching literature here. And Campbell mentions in one interview that, um, uh, you know, he can see you know, who took that job and what happened as a result of that, what his life would have been like. He said, I know the person who took that chair, who's teaching literature, perfectly fine fellow, not the life I'd want to have. In yeah. terms of politics, I, I have noticed over the years, especially by the time one gets to the 1950s and uh, Campbell visits India and starts having interactions with people in Tibet, 
uh, who had seen people murdered by the Chinese communists, his attitudes had changed somewhat. In you know, as early as the 1920s to 1925, he was kind of a proto-communist. He admired the experiment in Russia, you know, what was going on. And of course, at the same time in Russia, between 1920 and 1925, uh, Lenin kind of put communism on pause and instituted the new economic policy, which was really proto-capitalism, you know, just so, you know, the, the new Russia could get its grounding there. But then over time, Campbell's views evolved, you know, in World War II, as that approached, he was more of an isolationist, you know, we shouldn't necessarily go and get involved. Of course, he, like most people, didn't fully realize what was happening in Europe at the time with Hitler. And then by the time you get to the 1950s, he starts meeting more and more people uh, in the intellectual sphere, the academic world, who had to flee communism, who'd lost friends and relatives and colleagues in both Russia and China. And so his views definitely changed somewhat. And there were a few friendships that dissolved um, you know, that in, in the 40s, there was a very thriving bohemian community, but a number of people started becoming more politically active, you know, go out and protest against the atomic bomb, uh, you know, some good friends, uh, uh, Judith Molina, and I can't think of her husband's name at the moment, but they were involved with absurdist theater and so on. They started doing more political stuff and so kind of fell out of Campbell's sphere. Uh, and even, even though in the 60s and 70s and 80s, Campbell's views had evolved to something somewhat more conservative, it's really hard to pigeonhole him because he, you know, he was very much pro-choice, very much pro-environment, and so on. But I think a lot of people, as we get older, we tend to move towards a more conservative view of the world. Pardon <clears throat> me, but even then, when asked about politics by interviewers, specific political situations, <clears throat> um, things happening in the United States, things happening in Vietnam or around the world, even though privately Campbell had an abundance of opinions, he always made clear that he felt his political opinions would not be useful in a discussion of myth. And that may be the same idea of, you know, the new criticism, uh, that school of thought, that you don't bring your personal biography into things. But also, I think Joe didn't believe that mythology was in service of a political political position, which is very different from some people who, who claim a, a connection to Campbell. And I think, I hope this isn't opening up a whole can of worms, but say someone today like Jordan Peterson, who sometimes follows similar thing, themes, ends up getting involved in politics and really diving deep into the weeds, which in my mind, you know, just emphasizes the wisdom of Campbell's approach, because that really tarnishes the material and pulls you off base. Campbell's idea was to give you the info, you know, not to say, 
you know, this is the way Waki therefore in it. This is how you have to believe. But to say, okay, in myth, this happened here, that happened here, and so on. Uh, and then let people make whatever connections they will with it, rather than use it to propagandize. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting subject. He became somewhat disillusioned with Thomas Mann uh, because Thomas Mann became so political. And I think Campbell uh, sort of saw art for art's sake and shouldn't be uh, engaged in politics and things like that. And, and uh, it's a very interesting thing. You mentioned his trip to Europe in the 20s. And I think you have to understand Campbell through that lens of modernism. That's the argument I've made in other places. And I think he was a modernist through and through. Very much so. Uh, with hints of romanticism in, mm -hmm. in there, too. Uh, you know, it was a period of intense transition, uh, but I, you know, I, I definitely would be curious because I never really noticed him discussing postmodernism, what his reaction would be to what developed after that. Uh, but Europe, yeah, that, that made such a tremendous difference for him because it introduced him to the zeitgeist at the time. And in the United States, we were somewhat isolated from that, very provincial. You know, Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses was illegal, uh, which, uh, you know, Joe had to commit a crime to smuggle his copy of Ulysses purchased in Paris back to the United States because it was illegal at the time. But definitely that influenced him. And then I think his years after that, uh, Campbell's period in the wasteland, in my mind, or uh, even what I would call his death and rebirth experience, I believe that came in the, the 30s, you know, with the Depression, he could not continue on to school. He could not get a job anywhere. Uh, so he retired to Woodstock and essentially read for five years, along with an epic journey out to California, driving an old Model A you know, in uh, 1932, which led him to fall in with a band of bohemians you know in carmel monterey uh, foremost of which was john steinbeck and uh, ed ricketts the biologist you know who had a lot to do with you know that the, the three of them together ricketts steinbeck and campbell tended to shape each other's thoughts they were very compatible and that was an incredible experience for him because he had no responsibilities outside of that he had some money left from his years playing in a band in in college uh, at one point. Well, in fact, uh, his biographers note that his bank book at the time in the late 20s into the 30s consistently showed about $3,000 in the bank, all of which was from his own earnings, not from his parents. Uh, and that was a powerful lot of money at that time. He ended up, when his father's business failed, loaning a certain amount of money to the family, purchasing a car uh, for the family, and so on. So uh, he, yeah, in this time, as that money was running out, he went to look for a job somewhere. And 
uh, applied to or sent letters to 72 different universities and colleges around the country. Out here in California, he interviewed with the Hearst papers trying to get a job as a journalist. There was just no work anywhere. And that freed him up. You know, th th there was this free fall to it that allowed him to find his own way. And I, I can really identify with that because there was a period in my life, the same basic thing where the old world, the old structure had gone away. And there was a period of time in there, a few years when anything was possible, but there was just no firm ground to stand on. So you kind of have to rebuild yourself. And that's what Campbell did. Yeah. You you bring up so many interesting points, and you know we we have a biography that the Larsons wrote about Campbell called "A Fire in the Mind," but it seems like there's a lot of information that that could warrant a, a new biography of Campbell. I, I I tend to think so, and I the Larsons did a marvelous job on that uh, in, in terms of pulling a lot of information in, and it was written almost immediately after Campbell's passing. And with the approval of Jean Erdman, Joe's widow. Uh, so I, I shy away from using the word hagiography, but in a sense, you know, this is a work that was written by, by true believers, by people who were very much, you know, closely involved with and had drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, because Stephen and his late wife, Robin, they put in a tremendous amount of work on that. And Stephen's work in, in psychology is very intense and very, very wonderful. It's helped so many people. A uh, very, very bright individual. But it's just this was so soon after Campbell's death. And when important figures, intellectual figures or political figures die, it is interesting that the first works that come out, you know, are usually hagi hagiography. You know, they're, they're payons to the individual who passed. And then within the next couple decades, more critical works come out, you know, that look for the feet of clay. And Joe definitely had feet of clay. I think he'd be the first one to bring that up. You know, which is why he tended to shy away from biography, too. You know, he didn't want his life to influence people's approach to or understanding of mythology and how that works in their lives. And then after that, you know, you move into a period of more objective works. And I noticed that with Carl Jung is a very good example. You know, early works were very very much, you know, from people who drank the Kool-Aid, unions, uh, you know, an apocryphal saying, I know you're familiar with, attribute it to Jung, is that, you know, thank God I am Jung and not a Jungian, uh, you know, which he didn't mean as a negative about them, but that, you know, these are disciples who are writing those works. And then it gravitated over to works that were very critical of Jung and bringing up negative stuff, shadow stuff. And then in the last couple of decades, I've noticed far more objective works that look at the pro and the con, you know, the warts and, you know, the, the, the wonders of the man's work. And I think we're going to see the same thing with uh, Joseph Campbell. Now, I have to admit that, you know, like in 
my uh, the book that I wrote, Myth and Modern Living, the essay collection, uh, even though I try to be as objective as possible, I too, you know, drank the Kool-Aid there. So I'm not sure I'm the one to write a, an objective biography of Joseph Campbell, but I believe scholars will be doing this in years to come. Yeah. You know, it seems to me Campbell was quite fond of Hinduism. Uh, how how uh, do you think that affected his life? Uh, well, he was fond of Hinduism uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is that in the early 20s, you know, on uh, a shipboard to Europe, you know, in those days, you didn't fly over in planes, you know, so it wasn't like he was, you know, taking a cruise <clears throat> per se, but his dad had business in Europe, took the family along on that. Uh, Campbell was introduced to Jiddu Krishnamurti, who at the time was the Messiah or the Maitreya, you know, to come of the Theosophist Society. Yeah, uh, uh, Krishnamurti had been discovered as a young child, you know, and really delved into Hinduism and Buddhism and so on. One of Krishnamurti's companions gave to Joseph Campbell a biography of the Buddha, which was Joe's introduction to Buddha. And then Krishnamurti, who he became close friends with over the years, uh, he ran into Krishnamurti again years later when Campbell was a graduate student in Europe, hanging out in the studio of Antoine Bordel, who uh, was a sculptor, uh, one of Rodin's chief students, you know, a powerful sculptor in his own right, who kind of ran a salon out of this studio of people who would come, you know, do art in his studio, have marvelous conversations one of whom was Krishnamurti, who at the time, again, was a very famous figure, at least among theosophists around the world. Uh, and so Campbell and Krishnamurti would have really deep conversations about Hinduism. And Campbell, you know, later in life, he said this is something that he delved into and then got out of and got into and got out of. But yeah, he, he definitely found Hinduism fascinating at the time. To Krishnamurti's credit, by the way, a couple of years later, he decided he wasn't the Messiah, and he stepped down from the Theosophical Society, you know, as their figurehead, and led his own life as a teacher and a writer. And if if you read Krishnamurti's works or Alan Watts' works and Joseph Campbell's works in tandem, you find these three individuals are all thinking along the same lines. They tend to complement one another. But then uh, Campbell was asked to edit Zimmer's works, and Heinrich Zimmer was an Indologist. So most of that work related to India, primarily Hinduism, Tantricism, and Buddhism, especially Hinduism. So Campbell developed this romantic idea of what Hinduism was like, and then after he completed those works in 1954, Joe went on sabbatical. He spent six months in India and six months in Japan. And six months in India introduced him to the realities of Hinduism as it was practiced. And that kind of disabused him of the romantic sense of Hinduism in, in that regard. He 
he uh, loved the ideas, loved the concepts, loved the mythological imagery that came out of that, but found the practice of it uh, was not doing India any favors. Uh, so he kind of distanced himself from Hinduism and uh, was more attracted uh, over the years to Buddhism, uh, which you know is he describes in the work Myth and Meaning that's coming out in November. He points out that, say, Judaism and Hinduism are ethnic religions. They're based on, you know, to be a Hindu, you know, you have to be born a Hindu. To be a Jew, you have to be born Jewish, you know, to a Jewish mother. Or there are things you can do to convert to those religions, but they're they're very intense. Whereas Christianity and Buddhism are evolutions of those religions or export, I think, is the word that Campbell uses, half tongue in cheek. You know, those become world religions that uh, you know, they're not just you know, connected to a particular people in a particular place at a time. So over the years, Campbell uh, became fond of Buddhism, Taoism to some extent, but in in terms of, you know, and really all religions spoke to him, like he would point out elements of that he found important in Buddhism and Hinduism, he could also find in Navajo or Diné mythology in the American Southwest and so on. So it's not like he was an adherent of these religions, but he especially liked the elegance of Buddhism. But then Gene Erdman pointed out the last year or two of Joe's life, he gravitated back to Hinduism, uh, which is, it, it's a very messy religion. I kind of think of Hinduism myself as Buddhism gone Bollywood, because it is colorful and magnificent and incredible and polytheistic and very, very messy. But it's this joyous embrace of life. And I think that's something that you know, Campbell really appreciated in his final years there. So it was an interesting arc, you know, this trajectory of his relationship with Hinduism. And I hope that answers your question. Uh, yeah. Ask me the time and I'll tell you how to build a lot. <laughs> you mentioned the sculptor Bordell. Yes. And uh, he actually did a bust of Campbell. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. It's a beautiful bust. It wasn't by Bordell. It was by Bordell's student, Angela Gregory, who is a brilliant sculptor in her own right. But she showed it to Bordell and he, you know, she consulted with him as she was doing it because she created it in Bordell's studio and did more than one casting of it. I believe one of it is in the archives, Opus Archives and Research Center. It's one of the artifacts on the campus of the Pacific Graduate Institute, where Joseph Campbell's personal library is housed and a number of the physical artifacts and uh, the recordings of all those thousand plus uh, lectures and talks that he gave over the course of his life. Uh, Angela Gregory was from New Orleans. She and Joe were very close in in Paris. She was really his first friend. 
over there. And uh, they stayed close. She became very close to Gene Erdman, uh, and they maintained contact after Joe died. And a number of uh, sculptures uh, in and around New Orleans, uh, including, I think, the Maid of Orleans. I could be wrong about that, but uh, were created by Angela Gregory. That bust, though, is very beautiful. Uh, young Joseph Campbell, as my wife will tell me from looking at his pictures, he was a dish. You know, this is the thing. I think uh, this is one of the places where he gets this supreme confidence that he had. It was very physically beautiful and also an elite athlete. Mm -hmm. And you you put those things together and you get this it, kind of an individual with a supreme confidence. And I think Campbell really demonstrated that over his life. I would agree. I believe he felt all things were possible. Yeah, the, the athletics occurred when he was at Columbia. He started off at Dartmouth but, and, in fact, majored in biology. He was moving in the direction of science. But after his first year there, he did not appreciate the party atmosphere on campus. Obviously, the man didn't have his priorities straight. I went to college. <laughs> I know it was all about partying. But uh, so he transferred to Columbia, which allowed him to live at home in New York. That was much more comfortable for him. And he moved in the direction of literature, particularly the Arthurian romances. At the same time that he was going to school there, you know, he was playing in that jazz band and, you know, playing not just school dances, but at the Plaza Hotel, you know, and all over New York with this you know, large combo, you know, this jazz ensemble that Paul Lincoln put together. Uh, so that was powerful. And he went out for track. He didn't actually go out for track. You know, he was running around the track one day because he liked exercise and he was lapping all the people on the track team. So the track coach took him aside after seeing him out there and asked if Joe would join the track team, which he did. And in fact, we may have that to thank in a sense for his graduate career, because after he graduated in I think 1925, right around there, uh, he stayed on one more year at Columbia because he was now the captain of the track team. And he competed in a number of intramural events. He was one of the fastest people on the planet in the mid twenties. And in fact, myth and meaning goes into this at one point. Uh, you know, when someone asked Joe in a question and answer session about failure, uh, and I forget exactly how the question is phrased, but yeah, failure in life. And he brings up the Olympics because there was this one incredible race. You know, Campbell won everything. He would point out, you know, he had a box at home that would cover a bed with all his medals and awards from running. You know, at one point, he, he went over to San Francisco to compete. And then from there, you know, took a ship over to Hawaii because his friend Jackson Schultz, who was his roommate at the time, suggested you should go there. You know, that's a wonderful place to be. Jackson Schultz later, you know, won a medal in the Olympics in Paris at the time. And Campbell was headed on 
an Olympic track. And then there's one crucial race that he ran and he lost. And he was fond of saying he, he replays that race in his head just about every day <laughs> for, for the rest of his life because it was this seminal moment you know, that took him off the Olympic track. Uh, and he uses this to discuss um, Nietzsche's concept of amor fati, you know, love of your fate, you know, love of where you are. He, he said you embrace that. Yeah, if he'd gone to the Olympics, if he'd meddled at the Olympics or even competed in the Olympics, He'd be a track coach somewhere, some sort of sports figure, and might not have followed the path of scholarship. But with that race, and it's not like he couldn't have kept racing at that point, but when he lost that race, he was at the point of trying to decide between scholarship or sports. And he was realizing that scholarship was just so demanding, the direction that he wanted to go in, exploring myth that... You know, he had to choose between these two mistresses. It wasn't a case of keeping both of them at that point. So that race helped affirm for him the choice that he was making. And then someone asked him, so you're saying, you know, you know, this was right. You, this amorfate, saying yay to life, yay to losing that race. You know, that was great because your life worked out better. And Campbell points out, no, 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 you know, it's not that life is better. This is the life that I have. And I wouldn't have the life that I have now, you know, if not for that race. That doesn't mean that it's better, you know, or worse. You know, we still have, you know, we're born in a world of toil and trouble and pain and so on. Life still comes at you. There are you know, agonies and ecstasies with it. But his point was that you say yes to life, you embrace it. Everything that happens to you is what's supposed to happen. I, I was just reading today, there's this marvelous new book out by uh, genius grant scholar, Robert Sapolsky, uh, called, I think, Determinism, the, the, Science of the Absence of Free Will. I might have the title slightly off there, but uh, Sapolsky's point is that there is no free will whatsoever, which is a radical position for a scientist to take. And it looks very intriguing. I definitely want to read it. If his conclusions are correct, I probably have no choice. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> what will happen. But uh, I, I tend to think of it, and I think this may well have been Campbell's approach too, something that Nehru, the first prime minister of India, who Campbell knew and spent time with when he was in India on sabbatical there, Nehru's approach was that, you know, it, it kind of determines, it, it depends on where you're standing, determinism versus free will. Determinism is the cards you're dealt. Free will is how you play the hand that you're dealt. And I kind of like that approach to life. Campbell was adept at playing the hand that he was given. Uh, it's hard to find moments in his life when he was discouraged. There were such moments, especially 
again in 1932 when he's going back and forth with, what do I do? Should I teach? You know, should I become a writer? Uh, should I become a journalist? You know, those were kind of the three things that were he was struggling with. And in fact, in his journals at the time, you know, there are page after page, you know, every few weeks he'll come up with, you know, charts or graphs where he puts down the pros and cons of each of these career choices. And he goes back and forth and back and forth on that. Well, life eventually took a hand. You know, he was invited to teach at Canterbury, the prep school he went to, which were basically students, you know, junior high to high school level and all boys. He did not like that at all. You know, it was all about discipline. So he did that for a year. Pardon me. <clears throat> Excuse me while I clear my throat there. Did that for a year. Then in, as he said, he gave up that job and went back on the depression, if you will, and continued reading in a tiny shack up at Woodstock that cost, you know, a couple of dollars a year to rent. Yeah, and then received an invitation to teach at Sarah Lawrence, which at the time, you know, was not co-ed. Most of the time that he taught there, it was a girls' school. It was very avant-garde, so there was a lot of freedom for a teacher. You didn't have to do the publish or perish thing, uh, you know, and, and write up your work in obscure journals that no one would ever read and have an academic style of writing. So life reached out, you know, but Joe was ready for it when the opportunity arose and he said yes to it all the way. Well, Stephen, we could, we could go on talking all day long, uh, but uh, we've, uh, we have to surrender to fate and time. So uh, I, I appreciate you being willing to talk with us and talk about the book. And uh, thank you again so much. And if you have a valediction, now might be the time. <laughs> all right. Well, all I would say is myth and meaning. Get the book. Uh, you'll learn Campbell's thoughts about image, how image is primary in myth, you know, the importance, the significance of metaphor, but also even people who are very, very familiar with Joseph Campbell will learn things that they weren't aware of. And for those who aren't familiar with Joseph Campbell, I believe it's a marvelous introduction to his work. And thank yeah. you, Brad, for being such a delightful host and putting up with my excessive verbosity. <laughs> That's always a delight, Stephen. And uh, your book is available at fine bookstores everywhere. And, and uh, hopefully uh, people will be as curious to read it as I am. Very good. Thank you. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network. It is produced by Tyler Lapkin. Executive producer, John Booker. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Charles Mallet. All music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.